All right, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak into our lives through his words at this time. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we believe that your words are life to us. And so here we are before you now, and we say, speak, your servant is listening. We want you to hear, we want to hear you loudly and clearly. So I pray that you will help me to just get out of the way and let you let you work in people's hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, today's sermon is from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, and it's titled, Jesus Calls Sinners. And we're on this journey of rediscovering the glory, and the beauty, and the wonder, and the grace of Jesus Christ in this season of our church. And we're doing this by studying the gospel of Luke together. As we do this together as a church, we will learn how to be his disciples, faithful to him and fruitful in our lives. So what do you think are the foundational and intrinsic activities that characterize what a disciple of Jesus Christ does? Is it attending worship service? Is it serving in ministry? Is it being involved in outreach? You know, what I just mentioned are, are certainly important and you can probably think of, you know, a, a dozen other ideas as well. But the one activity that I'm thinking about as foundational and intrinsic is repentance. Repentance literally means a turnaround, renouncing one's sinful way of life and turning towards trusting and following Jesus into the life that Jesus gives, God gives, which is true and full and eternal. And repentance is not just what you do in the beginning when Jesus calls you. Repentance actually is a lifelong part of following Jesus. As Martin Luther wrote in the first of his 95 theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. So if you hear this, you might be like, that sounds miserable, Pastor, or I don't always want to feel guilty. And thinking that, you know, repentance is a negative thing. And it's actually not. Repentance leads to being released from the guilt of sin. Repentance leads to experiencing the joy of God's salvation given to us by his grace. And this is what this scripture that I'll be preaching from today explains as clear as day. And I just hope that I can present it clear, clearly and faithfully for us. At this time, please find Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32 in your Bibles. Uh, Luke has been taking us through Jesus' early ministry in Galilee. And Jesus had declared that he, he was the king of God's kingdom that he promised in the scripture. And he not only taught this persuasively, but he also verified his identity powerfully through casting out demons and healing sick people. In fact, just before this, Jesus healed a paralyzed man and forgave his sins. And this got him into all sorts of trouble with the Pharisees and scribes who began to watch him very carefully. So this is what happened next. This is God's word. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and other scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, 
Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen. So here's the one thing for my sermon today. This is the main message from this scripture that we just read. Recognize Jesus' call for sinners to repent. And from Luke 5, 27 through 32, we see three simple calls are parts to Jesus' call to be his disciple. Three uh, phrases that Jesus says to us. First, follow me from verses 27 and 28. Second, invite others from verses 29 to 30. And third, repent from verses 31 and 32. So, okay, let's jump into this narrative now with part one. First, Jesus says to us, follow me. Uh, in verses 27 and 28, we see that Jesus called Levi, the tax collector, to follow him, and he did so right away. Uh, here's the first truth about Jesus' call to be his disciple from this part. Jesus' call to follow him always includes a changed life. Levi was a tax collector, which meant that he collected taxes and customs on behalf of the Romans. In the ancient world, this job was always open to a lot of corruption. And usually the Romans appointed tax collectors from among the indigenous population that they conquered so that they could have local insiders pushing their agendas and doing their dirty work for them. And even worse, Jewish tax collectors were notorious for taking their own fees on top of the Roman regulated taxes. And so tax collectors were essentially robbing, uh, robbing their own people and betraying their own people. Uh, furthermore, for very strict Jews, hatred for tax collectors was intensified because of their, uh, because of their certain un uh, ceremonial uncleanness due to their constant interactions with Gentiles. And so the picture is clearly painted that Levi was a very shady person. And this is what made Jesus calling to Levi so confusing and so controversial, as, we, as we'll see later. Was this the kind of person Jesus wanted to be his disciple? Back in Jesus' day, prominent Jewish rabbis or teachers would extend invitations to others to learn from under them. And they would be his disciples or students who would apprentice and study from their rabbis. And rabbis would only invite people whom they deemed worthy of their pri privileged investment. So verse 27 is so brief and so matter of fact. After this, he went out and saw the tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said, follow me. But the good news here that I want us to see is that no one is too sinful for Jesus to invite to be his disciple. And no one has done too many sins. No one has sinned so badly that Jesus cannot forgive and invite them to be a disciple. And in the midst of Jesus' skyrocketing popularity and fame in Galilee, what Jesus did was he just stopped at a tax booth and decided that he wanted to invite this despised tax booth, our tax collector, to be his disciple. And it's almost certain that Levi had heard of Jesus and listened to his teaching at some point. And the sense of privilege was not lost on Levi. Verse 28 says, 
This is how he responded to Jesus' invitation. Very simple as well. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, what caused Levi to react so dramatically or so suddenly? So remember in the previous section, Luke presented the idea that Jesus is the king of God's kingdom who has the authority to forgive sins, the sins of people. Then in this narrative to follow, Luke's point is that God forgives the sin of sinners, even sinners like Levi. And when Jesus forgives the sins of a sinner, the sinner is invited to be Jesus' disciple. If you remember when Jesus called Simon Peter, he was ghastly. Simon Peter was ghastly aware that he was a sinner and he left everything to follow Jesus. And remember what happened last week when Jesus healed the paralytic man and declared that his sins were forgiven? That man's life was literally transformed. He could walk and he recovered his ability to work and make a living for himself and participate in the community now. You see, his life was undeniably different, and he went off now glorifying God with his life. And I think that Luke here is putting together a composite of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And now Levi's call fills in more of that picture. Even though it says, it says it very succinctly, Levi changed. He experienced the change of heart to trust Jesus as the authority to forgive sins and to be worthy of his entire life. You know, I don't think we're all called to leave our jobs in order to follow Jesus, but for Levi, this was the case. You see, if his whole identity before had to do with his life as a tax collector, which sadly seemed to be the case, his identity as a person now was to be Jesus's apprentice, which meant to learn his teachings, follow his way of life, and trust him as Savior and King. His life was fundamentally changed. And for Levi specifically, he was one of the 12 whom Jesus appointed as apostles, that is, disciples for most of his earthly ministry and eyewitnesses of his death and resurrection. Levi would be a pillar of the first church in Jerusalem, and actually wrote the gospel of Matthew. Matthew was Levi's Greek name. So this was the beginning of a lifetime of following Jesus for Levi. So let me repeat the first truth about Jesus' call to be his disciple again, and let me talk a little bit more about it. Jesus' call to follow him always includes a changed life. So let me be clear here, okay? The changed life I'm talking about is not us trying to change our lives, but God changing our hearts by his grace. When God uh, saves someone, there is a logical order in a person. This is called the order of salvation in theological terms. God calls a person into his kingdom. He regenerates his heart. That's a spiritual rebirth. He causes him to repent and have faith in Christ, and he justifies him. He makes him righteous before God. It's this regeneration that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 and 18. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. 
a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. So there is a definitive and fundamental change in a person whom Jesus calls to follow, literally a new person. Now, some of you might feel weird to be told this because uh, you don't feel like you've changed too much or you don't feel like you're changing fast enough. So first, let me encourage you that if you have faith in Jesus, you are a new creation, thus changed and changing. It may be hard for you to say, see, but be patient and trust God's words to be true. And also, it is a good chance for all of us to examine our lives. Are you really following Jesus in your life? As Jesus said, anyone who comes after me must deny himself and take up his cross. So here's something that um, uh, John Mark Comer wrote in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, that's worth thinking about in light of this. Quote, we read the stories of Jesus, his joy, his resolute peace through uncertainty, his unanxious presence, his relaxed manner, and how in the moment he was, and think, I want that life. We hear his open invite to life and to the full and think, sign me up. We hear about his easy yoke and soul deep rest and think, gosh, yes, heck yes, I need that. But then we're not willing to adopt his lifestyle. But in Jesus' case, it is worth the cost. In fact, you get back far more than you give up. There's a cross, yes, a death but it's followed by an empty tomb, a new portal to life. Because in the way of Jesus, death is always followed by resurrection, end quote. John Mark Comer then uh, gave an illustration that explains his point. And he, he writes about how in the early morning, while he's you know, drinking his morning coffee and looking outside, he sees his neighbors getting ready for their daily run. And uh, they look really good. They're lean and muscular, have good, uh, good posture. And he thinks to himself, I want that. But then he thinks about the lifestyle behind it and what he'd need to give up. Netflix late at night, eating freely and enjoyably, and the comfort of spending mo uh, mornings uh, in his pajamas drinking coffee. He wants the life, but is not willing to adopt the lifestyle behind it. And the point is this, Jesus' call to follow him always includes a changed life. While it is a work of God's grace, from our side, we make the choices of following Jesus's way of life. How do I work the way of Jesus? Is how I relate to people the way of Jesus? Is what I prioritize in my days and weeks the way of Jesus? Is what I do to steward my body and my money and my time the way of Jesus? And I'd like for us to wrestle honestly with these questions. And if you're feeling maybe a bit of despair or discouragement, I, I promise you I'm not going to leave you hanging for too long. Uh, just wait until we get to part three, all right? So in part one, Jesus says, follow me. And let's continue in the narrative with part two now. Second, 
Jesus says to us, invite others. In verses 29 and 30, we see that Levi hosted a great feast for Jesus and invited many of his friends to meet Jesus. Here's the second truth about Jesus' call to be his disciple from this part. Jesus' disciples honor him by introducing others to him. So as I go through this part, I want you to think about who you identify with the most among the people in this scene. So maybe you can relate with, uh, with Levi and his friends. Um, Levi must have understood the incredible grace that Jesus extended, extended to him. That's why in verse 29, it says, and Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him, with them. The privilege of being invited to be a disciple was not lost on Levi. He wanted to repay the honor. And as a well-to-do man, as a tax collector, he did what was pretty common for the culture in first century Israel. He threw a huge party at his house. He invited his friends, colleagues, former, former colleagues, that is, and subordinates to this great feast. And this kind of table fellowship was a special way to honor someone. And he wanted to honor Jesus and also to enjoy a close, intimate time with loved ones. So can you just imagine with me how he invited his friends? Maybe it was something like this. Hey, guys, have you heard of that guy, Jesus, who's teaching powerfully and healing all sorts of people? Well, that guy invited me to be his disciple. And now I'm throwing a party at my house because I want you to get to know him too. Levi understood that grace is more enjoyed and more celebrated when more people know about it and experience it for themselves. And so he introduced his friends to Jesus. So listen carefully, a table fellowship in the ancient world signified mutual acceptance and close, relation, uh, close friendship. So Jesus and Levi sharing the table together and also sharing the table with Levi's friends was extremely, extremely significant. So who were in Levi's social circle? Who were his friends and colleagues and subordinates? As I mentioned, it was this big group of tax collectors, of course. They were, they were, these were the guys that he worked with and he hung out with and he shared life with. And there were others mentioned too, other people of comparably bad reputations who they also worked with, hung out with, partied, partied with, and shared life with. Morally loose people. Gentile counterparts and other people that good religious Jews would just never associate with in the first century. Levi's friends were accepted by Jesus too, to eat together, to have conversations, to laugh, to joke, and to maybe even receive some teaching at the time. I'm actually sure that it was a bit of probably all of the above. And for Levi's guests, their conduct probably was. Uh, probably what you would expect, right? Maybe a little bit too much drinking or using a lot of crass language. Um, but, but we just have to know Jesus and his disciples weren't going crazy like that, but they accepted these people just as they were. Uh, maybe you can identify more with Pharisees and scribes. 
Verse 30 says that, uh, says, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Do you remember who the Pharisees and scribes were from, from last week? Uh, the Pharisees were a sect of, uh, within Judaism that wanted to keep the nation of Israel faithful to God by strictly keeping the law of Moses. The, the teachers of the law were also known as the scribes. And those were the people who studied and interpreted the law of Moses professionally. And so these two groups of people developed what is known as the traditions, the system of specific rules that were applied to the law that was lived out by um, people in first century Israel. And so in some, the Pharisees and scribes uh, were the leaders and the guardians of Israel's religion. And just like before, they didn't bring up their concerns with Jesus directly. They grumbled at his disciples. And this world word grumbling is, is, is not just like just uh, speaking negatively. It was what the Israelites did in the wilderness way back in, uh, way back in the Old Testament. It was this questioning of God and hardening of their hearts. Now think about these other disciples, the ones that Jesus had first called, okay, for, for a bit. Um, they were probably super uncomfortable and super uncertain about this situation. Remember, Jesus' first disciples were fishermen. They were common, blue-collar, not-so-educated folks. But they were still devoted to their Jewish culture and religion and nation and zealously loyal to their, to their nation unlike the tax collectors who were considered traitors. They probably were wondering, the, his Jesus' disciples, what are we doing here with these people? But then they would look at Jesus and th think to themselves, um, well, it seems like Jesus loves being with these people. Um, and finally, they would probably look at the Pharisees and scribes these people who carried a lot of weight in their society, frowning on this situation. And they would worry, you know, like, if these guys disapprove, shouldn't, shouldn't we? They had to wonder if they were following the right guy, if they were following Jesus or these established Jewish leaders. So let me repeat the second truth about Jesus' call to be his disciples again and talk a little bit more about it. Jesus' disciples honor him by introducing others to him. So you can be honest. Who do you identify with in this scene? Uh, maybe you identify with Levi and his friends here because you've never fit into religious circles. You've often felt judged or just uncomfortable with them. What I'd like to say is this. Welcome. Welcome, because I am happy that you're learning about Jesus today. Maybe you can identify with the Pharisees and the disciples, some of us here, because you are kind of judgy towards people of other religions or people who have a reputation as being wild or shady or questionable. You can't help but think how different they are than you in what they do for fun, what they talk about, or their reputation that they have. And I don't think it's a spoiler here to say that Levi is the model of someone who experiences God's gracious call and change of heart and then honors Jesus by introducing his friends, also sinners, to him. For new Christians, 
this comes naturally because the good news is still fresh and most of our, uh, their friends are still not Christians either. But the longer we're Christians, we have more prominent friendships with fellow Christians, which is a good thing. But then it seems to get harder to relate more authentically and deep, more deeply with non-Christians. I think of it as similar to this. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I didn't want to invite my friends from school over to my house to hang out or to play, which was an unusual thing because this was normal to do in the, in the town that I grew up in the United States. And the two big reasons that I was so malu were that I was always insecure about others' houses, that others' houses were so much better than mine's. In other words, I envied their life, and I thought their life was so much better than mine, and that I was always worried of Americans meeting my Korean parents. In other words, I was worried that they think my culture was weird. And I'm pretty ashamed that I, I feel I felt that way, this way now, as I know that I didn't need to be shy about my beautiful culture and my friends' homes actually were not that great, uh, even though they might have had a lot of stuff. In fact, looking back at it, I think introducing my friends would have honored my parents. And I think it's the same reasons we're, we're a bit malu about introducing others to Jesus as well, isn't it? Sometimes we actually envy the lives of non-Christians, if we're honest, and, and think that they have it better than us. Sometimes we're embarrassed about our church, its messiness and strangeness. But what I'd exhort us to do as followers of Jesus is to be intentional to invite others to the Jesus that is in the scriptures, the one who loves table fellowship with us, with us, sinners like us, and with others. This is how we honor the Lord. Paul says this after he talked about how God makes people new creations in Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.20. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. We are the, we are the representatives of Jesus in the world because we want our friends and loved ones to come back to God. And actually, when we interact meaningfully with people who are not Christians, it does also help us to see the gospel in a whole new light. You have to be real when that happens. You have to struggle with what you really believe. You have to wrestle with how you follow the way of Jesus. You see how meaningless and painful life is apart from God. And you have to examine your, the, the truth of your own belief system. These are all really good things for us to experience as Christians. These are all really good for us, really good witnesses to others and honors Jesus Christ. So in part one, Jesus says, follow me. In part two, Jesus says, invite others. Let's finish this narrative with part three. Uh, third, Jesus says to us, repent. So in verses 31 and 32, we see that Jesus explained to the Pharisees and scribes that his mission was to call sinners to repentance. 
Here's the third truth about Jesus' call to be his disciple from this part. Jesus' mission is to call sinners to repentance in him. Uh, even though the Pharisees and scribes pointed their question to the disciples, uh, Jesus is the one who piped up and who responded to them. Jesus gave a very simple analogy here in verses 31 and 32. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick and have come to call, I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, it wouldn't make any sense for a healthy person to go to the hospital or subject himself to something like surgery, right? But listen carefully to the flip side because it's super duper important, all right? Those who have a life-threatening condition like cancer or heart disease absolutely need to undergo whatever treatment is needed, medication, surgery, or chemotherapy, and they do those things in order to get healed. If they don't, they won't experience healing. In the same way, Jesus is the great physician who has come because we all have a really serious condition. And that's our sin and our unrighteousness. And we have a great physician who also provides a definitive life-saving solution. <clears throat> To help us feel this tension a bit more that Jesus is raising, uh, I want to just talk about the, the story of the great flood during Noah's time, and it's in the Bible in, in Genesis 6. Um, the Lord, what he did is he decided to flood the earth at, as, a, as his judgment upon the wickedness of humanity. And so what he did was he commanded Noah to build an, an ark, a huge boat, and it's like in today's measurements, like 150, approximately 150 meters long, 25 meters wide, and 15 meters tall. And when Noah obeyed, people mocked him because they thought this was ridiculous. They thought that he was crazy. They didn't see any need for this ark in the middle of the land, in the midst of normal rainfall, all right? But when it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and the world was submerged in water, it was too late. A giant lifeboat like the ark was didn't make sense at all until people were drowning in this deluge. And no one could swim. No one is able to swim well enough to survive this great flood. And the point is that all people will face judgment before God who is holy, no matter if you're a Pharisee, a fisherman, or a tax collector. We all need to know, they all need to know that their lifeboat, their need for a lifeboat, they, their need for a physician, and their need for a savior is real. And Jesus specifically said that he came to call sinners to repentance. You know, as I said before, the call to follow Jesus as Levi had done included the crucial step of repentance. This word literally means a change of mind. It meant realizing the folly of our sinful ways, trusting that Jesus is God's provision to save us from our sins, from these sins, and then deciding to follow Jesus as the king of our hearts and lives from now on. Remember who Jesus claimed to be when he was kicked out of 
uh, when he kicked off his public ministry in his hometown synagogue, he said that he was the king of God's kingdom who was, prom who, who was promised in the scriptures, who proclaimed the good news uh, to the poor in righteousness. He proclaimed freedom to those captives to sin. He proclaimed sight to the spiritually blind, and he proclaimed forgiveness of the debts of sinners. And think about what Jesus had done so far. He healed a leper by reaching out and touching him. He was willing and able to do this, right? He healed a paralyzed man and declared that his sins were forgiven. The miracle, this miracle was a sign of who Jesus truly was, that he was the son of man who would be the substitute sacrifices for the sins of the world. And now, like I've been saying, Luke added another layer to his presentation of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. When God works in a heart like this and calls him to follow Jesus, then sinners are healed of their sin sickness. They are forgiven of their sins and made right with God. And this is what had been such good news to Levi. He knew that this was for him. But I also think Jesus was making a specific point to the Pharisees and scribes here. Because people have to see their need for the great physician. Jesus is making an ironic point here. The sick are aware of their serious and real need for a doctor. Just like the poor are, uh, are aware of their serious and real need for money. Captives are aware of their serious and real need for freedom. The blind are aware of their serious and real need for sight. And those who are in debt are aware of their real and serious need for forgiveness. The tragedy here is that the Pharisees and scribes saw themselves as already righteous and in no need for a king who would have to die on the cross for their sins. In fact, the very idea that Jesus would have to do this was offensive to them because they didn't see themselves in the same category as tax collectors and other sinners. Let me repeat the third and final truth about Jesus' call to be his disciple uh, again and, and talk a little bit about, about it. Jesus' mission is to call sinners to repentance in him. Um, this brings everything together towards the main message of this scripture, to recognize Jesus' call for sinners to repent. You see, Jesus' mission was to save sinners. And he did this by sacrificing his life on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins instead of us. And through this action of Jesus, our sins are cleansed and forgiven, and we are made right with God. We're credited with Jesus' righteousness in place of our sinfulness. It was never, ever our own righteousness that earned any merit from God for you Pharisees out there. And there is no sin too great uh, or person so sinful that Jesus' sacrifice is not enough for you tax collectors out there. Jesus calls sinners. That means all of us to repentance and faith in him for this changed life. So let me address those who are not yet Christians here. Whether you're a Pharisee or a tax collector, 
whether you're religious or sinner, you need to acknowledge your need uh, for Jesus to save you from your sins and to put your faith in Jesus as the only way for God's salvation. And as you respond to that call, the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart to now repent and have faith in him. You will experience a changed life. If you sense Jesus calling you to follow him and to repent, that means the Holy Spirit is working in you right now. And make sure you tell others, tell your Christian friends here to help you grow in the Lord now and tell your non-Christian friends that need to know who Jesus truly is. Now, let me also address those who are Christians here already here because it's important for us to keep growing spiritually. But what I mean by growing spiritually might be different than what you expect. Um, what I mean by this isn't just learning more Bible, although that's good. It's not just participating in church more, which is also good. It's not just reaching out to others, which is fantastic to do. What I mean primarily about growing spiritually is becoming more aware of your sinfulness. In other words, knowing, just exploring how deep that rabbit hole of your depravity runs in your heart. It beca it's becoming more, uh, it's fathoming further God's holiness, how limitless the perfect righteousness and justice of God actually is. It's grasping the great sacrifice by which Jesus loves us. This is how the Apostle Paul describes it. This is a fantastic life verse for all of us too. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. Nothing is as wonderful as knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have given up everything else and counted all as garbage. All I want is Christ and to know that I belong to him. I could not make myself acceptable to God by obeying the law of Moses. God accepted me simply because of my faith in Christ. Amen. There is nothing as awesome as being a disciple of Jesus Christ being with him personally and intimately and following his ways. Other sources of righteousness, like in the Pharisees' case, or other sources of pleasure, like in the tax collector's case, become less and less. It becomes more like garbage compared to what Christ offers in his call to follow us. We recognize Jesus' call for sinners like us to repent, and that kind of life is a joyful life. It's joyful to catch ourselves when we fall into those broken idols that leave us empty. It is joyful for us to repent towards Jesus. It is joyful for us to experience his change in our lives. It's joyful to introduce Jesus to our friends and loved ones, although sometimes it's uncomfortable or difficult or we might offend them. So we can see Jesus do his life-changing work in them as well. So in part one, Jesus says, follow me. In part two, Jesus says, invite others. And in part three, Jesus says, repent. Now I'll conclude my sermon with a life application. Here are two questions for us to ponder and to take steps towards in light of us recognizing Jesus' call for sinners like all of us to repent. First, in what ways can you practice repentance in your life? 
you know, especially during this Lent season, make some margin in your life to implement repentance into your walk with the Lord. Uh, for example, I'm trying to spend more time in the evenings to reflect as part of my bedtime routine, reflecting on if my heart and if my actions have been consistent with the way of Jesus. And what are some ways that you can make some margin in your life to do something like this? Also, invite others into your life to encourage and challenge you to see if your heart and actions are consistent with the way of Jesus. Especially, listen carefully, if what they say is hard for you to swallow, don't be offended, don't be hurt, but reflect for yourself and repent for the sins the Holy Spirit convicts you of in your life. Second, who are some people that you can introduce to Jesus? We need to recognize that other people around us need Jesus as well. So create margin in your life during this Lent season to also build relationships with friends and family and neighbors who need Jesus. There are definitely people around you that God has put in your sphere of influence. And so what I would say is be prayerful. Pray for them. And also pray for God to give you ideas, to give you open doors. Initiate new and deeper relationships and humbly share your life with them. Not, not just the good stuff. Of course, you can share the good stuff, but also the stuff that requires you to honestly wrestle and struggle with the Lord. I believe that the Lord is deeply impressing in us a fresh rediscovery of Jesus. And so now let's bring ourselves to him and put this into practice right away. So you can implement repentance in your own life right now as the Holy Spirit is convicting you. You can implement praying for people right now uh, that you can introduce to Jesus. So let's go ahead and spend some time in prayer.